If you're visiting with us today, this is a great day to be here because um, whether you're married or single, the things that we're going to talk about today really um, cross all, all boundaries because they will help you in anything you do, in any relationship you have. And you'll, you'll understand that as we kind of go through this. Um, and so let's, let's, let's get started. You know, whenever you have relationships, really, again, any kind of relationships, one of the things that's going to happen at some point is that crazy word conflict. Anybody ever had conflict in a relationship? Okay. The rest of you are liars, but, uh, you know, the one, at least some of you are honest to raise your hands. Okay. You know, somebody said marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. I don't know how that corresponds, but it might. Somebody else said never argue with a spouse who is packing your parachute. Now, that's great advice. Okay. That's some pretty good advice there. You see, the reality of life is this. Conflict's going to happen. Whenever two people come together from different backgrounds and uh, with different personalities, different values, different morals, different worldviews, conflict is inevitable. In fact, I read, uh, several years ago, I read uh, uh, one of uh, clinical psychologists who dealt with marriages. One of the things he wrote was this. He said, if two people are alike in, in, in everything in, in life, then one of them's not needed. You know, and that's kind of true. And if you're, if, you're, if you're the same in everything, then one of you is not needed. The reality is we probably aren't going to be the exact same in everything. So because of that, conflict is inevitable. And it's not if or when it happens, but it's how you deal with it that will determine how healthy your marriage is, how healthy your family is, and how healthy your relationships are. Dr. Neil Warren, who was a who's a, a clinical psychologist. He's also the co-founder of eHarmony. Anybody in here heard of eHarmony? Yeah, we all have. Has anybody ever met on eHarmony? Did you meet on your spouse on eHarmony? Anybody in here? Seriously. We had some in first service that had met on eHarmony, so that's cool. Um, anyway, this is what he writes, and I really like this. He says, my years as a psychologist have slowly taught me a difficult-to-believe fact. The amount of conflict in a marriage only determines the speed at which the marriage is moving towards greatness or destruction. If you want to sit still in your marriage, rule out all conflict. If you want your marriage to crash and burn, let the conflict rage, but refuse to learn the skills necessary for managing it. Well-managed conflict is like a stairway that can lead you to higher and higher levels of marital greatness. I like that. In other words, conflict is going to happen, and what you do to handle the conflict will determine the success of your relationships. So over the last month, if you're visiting with us today, over the last month we've been in a, a great series. It's called The Vow, and I would encourage you to go to our website if you haven't been here for some of the weeks and catch the last three weeks because this is the last week in this series. Our goal through this is, is simply to, to be able to help your marriage or your future marriage to be all that God designed it to be. And as we will see today, even when conflict raises its ugly head, I still believe that even when those things happen in your relationships, it can still be what God designed it to be. We began the series talking about the vow of priority in week one where we make God our number one and our spouse our number two priority in our lives. In week two, Chad talked about the vow of pursuit, 
how marriage is something we always are working on by continuing to pursue and to date our spouse. As I was thinking about that, it reminded me of years ago, I heard a preacher, and some of you may, some of you may have heard this before, but I heard a preacher talk about the fact, you know, uh, when I was growing up, especially in my, in my parents' uh, era, uh, dating was referred to as what? Courting. Okay, so courting. So this old-time preacher, he stood up for his congregation because he was talking about marriage, and he simply said, if you would just, if there was more courting in marriages, he said there would be less marriages in court. And that's true, and that's what we mean by that vow of pursuit, to continue to pursue, continue to date your spouse. Last week, we looked at the vow of partnership. God designed us to complete one another as we do life together. And today, we're going to unpack what, what we are calling the vow of posture. The vow of posture. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you have ever been on a job interview? Okay, probably most of us. How many of you have been on a job interview this week? Anybody? How many of you have been on more than 10 job interviews? Raise them up. Hi, come on. How many of you have been on more than 15 job interviews, 20 job interviews? How many of you just live in a continual stream of job interviews? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some of you. Okay. Anyway, if you've ever been on a job interview, uh, especially if you've ever prepared to go into an interview, uh, you may have read uh, some of the suggestions that are in some of the books. And one of them that's mentioned over and over again is simply this. It's called Watch Your Posture. You ever heard that? When you go to a job interview, the importance of watching your posture. That became very true uh, to me this week. As, um, on Tuesday, as I, was, uh, I had an appointment to uh, help coach. I've co been coaching a pastor uh, down in um, the Charlottesville area, and so him and I were getting together on Tuesday, and I spent the afternoon with him, and then I was driving down to Williamsburg to, for my study break, and on my way, I called another young pastor. He's a youth pastor, and he happens to be my nephew, but I called him because he was going through a tough time. He had just went through the week and a half before a job interview at a church and he thought everything was great. He thought it went good. And then all of a sudden, he finds out that one elder kept him from getting the job. And he didn't understand until they told him. And it just so happened this, this elder was a CEO of a company. And he approached the interview as he would a business interview. And so he was concerned, and some of the things he talked about was Andrew's posture, how he sat how he made eye contact, and he just went down through the list. Whether right or wrong, it's not the issue. The issue is that's his expectations. And so what we forget about sometimes is just how important posture is. It's a visual image of how we feel and who we are. Our posture can express when we are lying and when we're sad, confident, and when we're scared. It gives insight into what's going on inside of us. And as in life, our posture is also extremely important in marriage. It can be an indicator of where we are within our marriage, especially in times of conflict. Now, as we think about posture in marriage, there are usually three types that are lived out. Some of you may demonstrate what we will refer to as the back-to-back -back type of posture. You're just back-to-back. -back. Now, this is a posture of constant conflict. It's a posture of lack of communication. 
This is where trust is always an issue and past wounds are used as ammunition. That's the back-to-back posture. Others may demonstrate what is called a shoulder-to-shoulder posture. Now, this is better than the first, but it's still not what God designed for us to have in our marriages. This is where your marriage is treated as a friendship. You're just buddies who like to hang out and do things together. But in the end, there's no real depth. There's no real sense of intimacy that brings you closer, especially in times of conflict. But for marriage to be what it was intended to be, this is what I believe. I believe you need to demonstrate what is referred to as a posture that's face-to-face. A face-to-face posture. This is one that moves from being just friends to a deep knowing. It's about developing a partnership of deep intimacy. It's marked by humility where self gets taken out of the equation. Face-to-face. I thought about this in terms of even the marriage ceremony. Because as you go through a marriage ceremony, what happens is, uh, especially at those moments that are some of the most important moments in a marriage, what does the preacher ask? Will you turn and face one another? Because it's that important. We need to develop that face-to-face posture, that intimacy. So for the next few moments, I want to give you four ground rules for dealing with conflict. Four ground rules that aren't going to be accomplished with a back-to-back posture. Four ground rules that's not going to be accomplished just because you're shoulder-to-shoulder and you're friends. They're only going to be accomplished by having a face-to-face posture. If you got your Bibles, turn, to, uh, turn with me to, um, in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 25. We're going to go through verse 32. Now, this passage, um, this passage normally refers to those relationships within the body, within the church, but it also has great application to the relationships that we have in the home, especially our marriages. So let's get started. Let's just jump right in. The first ground rule is this. Be honest and truthful in what you say. Be honest and truthful in what you say. Look at verse 25. Paul writes, So, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. I read this disturbing stat this week, and it's simply this. It says that 70%, get this, 70% of married people lie to their spouses. In a survey that was taken... It showed that 70% of married people lie to one another. Now, I'm realistic enough to know that there are times when it's tough to be honest and truthful, especially when we think that we might hurt the one we love. Guys, I know it's tough when she comes in and she says, does this dress make me look fat? And you're not sure what you're going to say. I mean, there are times when it's tough to be honest. But here's the thing. And this is what is so important to understand. If we value good relationships and we take seriously what God's word says, then honesty done in love must be something we value. Let's go back to verse 15 for a moment because look what Paul writes in verse 15 of this same chapter. He writes, God wants us to grow up 
to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ and everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. And what this means is this. Instead of doing what's easy, you've got to do what's right. You must be honest and you must speak the truth in love. And here's the reason why. Because when you submerge your true feelings in order to avoid conflict, you will undermine the integrity of your relationships. You might think you're keeping peace, but actually those feelings will go underground and they will eventually erupt sometime down the road. Let me tell you, you will never have a marriage of oneness if you and your spouse don't value authenticity and integrity. And so you've got to learn to be honest. But you've got to learn to do it in love. The ground rule number two. Be angry, but in your anger do not sin. Be angry, but in your anger do not sin. Look at the first part of verse 26. Here's what Paul writes. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Now, I don't know if it surprises you or not, but uh, Paul's not saying that anger in and of itself is a sin. After all, it's an emotion that God created. The problem comes when we allow anger to control us and to control our actions. That's when anger becomes a problem. That's when anger becomes a sin. Now, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Early on in my marriage to Lucy, and we have been married... Uh, right now, uh, for however how many years? No, I'm just kidding. We've been married at 37, be 38 in August. Um, and early on in our marriage, I struggled with this aspect. I think partly because that's kind of what I saw modeled, because my dad struggled with how, how he dealt with anger. And so I think I just kind of picked that up. And so I didn't really deal with anger in the proper way. I, I I would be what I would call a bottler. In other words, I would just bottle it all up in, inside of me. And I would just keep it in there. Instead of, so instead of dealing with the issue, when an issue arose, what I would do, I would usually just get in the car and I'd drive. I'd just kind of put it inside, put me inside a car, and I would drive, sometimes for hours. And sometimes I'd even kick the dog on the way of get, to get in the car. Not proud of it, but that's just the way it was. Because I didn't deal with it in the proper way. I didn't allow, I didn't allow God to have that piece of my life yet. I still kind of controlled it. So that's how I deal or dealt with the frustration that would come. That's how I would express it. And let me tell you, if you're a bottler today, here's the problem. To bottle anger is like trying to bury toxic waste. To bottle anger is like trying to bury toxic waste it will eventually leak out and it will poison everything around it. But maybe you're not a bottler. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're what I would refer to as a spewer. You just kind of spit it out. I mean, when you're anger, angry, you just let it fly. I mean, you just say whatever pops into your mouth. This person's kind of like a tornado that just kind of drops out of the sky, goes for just a little bit, and then is gone. And even though it doesn't last long, the devastation and the cleanup literally can last for months. 
And let me give you some help. Because the best way to handle your anger is not to bottle it and it's not to spew it, but it's to express it. It's to express it. Expressors have learned that when they're angry, they express it in a way that can bring healing, that can bring restoration. And the only real way to express it is by demonstrating that face-to-face posture because you've developed that, that intimacy in your marriage. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. So let me ask you, how do you keep your anger under control, or do you? How would you describe the way you deal with anger when it comes into your life? Let me give you some help. Paul gives us one of the keys, and it's found in the second half of verse 26. Look at what he writes. He goes on to say, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, don't let it simmer. Don't let it fester. Instead, deal with it in a timely fashion. In other words, do your best to deal with it before the day is through. Why? Look at verse 27. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. The word foothold can be translated as chance, opportunity, or space. In other words, our enemy is looking for a chance. Our enemy is looking for an opportunity to capitalize on your weaknesses so that he can get a foot in your door. And let me tell you, if your weakness is anger, guess what? He's going to get there, he's going to stay there, and he's going to find every opportunity he can to take you out. Now, most of you, a lot of you, are too, you're too young to remember this, but you may have read it in books or something or heard people talk about it. When I was growing up as a kid, they still had door-to-door salesmen. Okay, they would come around, they'd try to sell you a vacuum cleaner or, you know, they'd try to sell you encyclopedias or, you know, whatever. they just try to sell you something. And they would come and they would knock on the door and they were trained to be able to get a foot in the door. And so when you open that door, they would stick that foot right inside. Because they knew even if you closed the door, they couldn't close all the way because your foot was there. They got a foot in the door. Because they knew if they got a foot in the door, they were just one step closer to getting inside your house and selling you something. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying when when you don't deal with your anger, When you just let it fester, when you let it simmer, when you let it just go, you are giving your enemy, the devil, a foothold. You're giving him an opportunity. You're giving him a chance to get inside your marriage and begin to do some very destructive things. Because here's what happens to most of us, or a lot of us. When you don't deal with it, what happens when you go to bed? You lay there awake, thinking about how you're going to win the argument. You're building up ammunition to be able to play it out the next day. You just gave the devil a foothold in your relationship. In fact, some of you have been giving the devil a foothold in your marriage by not dealing with anger before you go to sleep. You may be like the husband who said, my wife is not talking to me today, and I'm in no mood to interrupt her. I mean, some of you, you, you may spend more nights on the couch and in a cold war the next day than you do sleeping together. 
I mean, let me tell you, relationships are hard enough on their own. So don't give the devil an opportunity to drive a wedge between you and your spouse. The other thing that when I was growing up, my dad, uh, he owned a couple pieces of property. And some of it was uh, he let some guys farm it. And then a lot of it was just woods. And uh, so we would go out and we would cut. We'd cut wood. And we had a lot of hardwoods, maple and walnut and oak. And those hardwoods are tough to split. And I remember on the biggest logs, and when my dad was trying to get those split, he had this big steel wedge. And he'd take that wedge and he would just begin to drive it slowly into that stump or that piece of wood that we were trying to split. And then he'd take his sledgehammer and he would just continually pound that wedge until that wedge began to drive in. And the farther the wedge went in, all of a sudden you begin to hear this crack. And then pretty soon, the log was split. That's what happens to lots of relationships. You allow the enemy to drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And Satan puts it there, and he takes his hammer, and he begins to pound And he begins to drive it. And the deeper it goes, the louder the crack until finally the split happens. Don't give him an opportunity. Don't allow him to drive a wedge. A moment ago, I told you that when we were first married, I struggled with how to deal with anger. Do you know what changed things for me in my life? It's when I realized that principle there. When I realized that I was allowing Satan to put a wedge between Lucy and I. That's when things changed for me. And that's when I began to learn to deal with it in the proper way. Ground rule number three. Guard your tongue and your tone. Guard your tongue and your tone. I love this story. A couple that were driving down just these country roads. They were on their way to go see somebody, and they were driving through the country. But there was no talking. It was just complete silence. You see, they had had an argument before they left the house. And neither one was going to surrender their position. So they just sat there in silence. And they drove and they drove and drove. Finally, going around this one corner, they, they passed this farm. And, and out in this field, right next, almost next to the road, they saw these donkeys and mules and these goats and these pigs. And the, and the husband just said very sarcastically, so, relatives of yours? Without missing the beat. And the wife just came back and said, yes, they are. They're my in-laws. <laughs> Paul goes on. Paul goes on to say this in verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You get that? Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be what? An encouragement to those who hear them. Then in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Here's the problem. The problem is this. There's a real temptation to wound our mates with our words when we feel we've been wounded. And our competitive spirit begins to raise its ugly head. And we begin to think, what can I do to win this argument? I mean, what can I do to win? That's why you stay up all night laying there building up ammunition because you're trying to find a way to win the argument. And here's what you forget. 
you forget that the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to restore the relationship. The goal is to reconcile to one another. That's the goal. The Bible says this in Proverbs 12, 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In Proverbs 51, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In 15.28 of Proverbs, it says, The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Let me ask you, what kind of talk comes out of your mouth? What kind of talk comes out of your mouth? Are you building others up by the things that you say, or are you tearing them apart one word at a time? So how can we make sure that we aren't hurting our spouses with our words, that we're not hurting others with our words? Well, look at verse 32, because it's one of the keys. He writes this, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted. You know, somebody once said, I'm careful of the words I say, so I keep them kind and sweet, because I never know from day to day which ones I'll have to eat. Like we've said before, Never miss an opportunity to encourage those around you, especially the ones you love. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, or put these things on, he's saying, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And so guard your tongue so that the words you say will be words of kindness and compassion. So that the words you say will be words that bring healing to open and hurting wounds. That's our goal. Ground rule number four. Be forgiving just as Christ has forgiven you. Wow. You thought these others were tough. This is tough. Be forgiving just as Christ has forgiven you. If we live and love long enough, we will all know the pain of broken relationships. Sometimes the wounds are deep like an affair or alcoholism or neglect or abuse. Sometimes they may just be surface wounds that are a result of carelessness or selfishness. But the reality is, at some point in our lives, people will eventually hurt us and let us down. That's why... This fourth ground rule is so critical for us. It's just so critical. In fact, it may be the most important. It's found in the last half of verse 32. Look what it says. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Again, the goal is not to win. The goal is to reconcile and to be restored. That's the goal. That's why forgiveness is so important. Now, the word forgive means, it means to dismiss, to release, to leave, or abandon. It also carries the meaning to restore someone back to their original condition. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Look what he says. 
For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells an interesting parable that gives us some more insight into forgiveness. It's the parable of a king, and he had a servant that literally owed him, we'll say, $100,000. And the servant couldn't pay, and so the king brings him in and says, because you can't pay, I'm just going to throw you into prison. I'm going to throw your family into prison. I'm going to sell everything you have, but you're going into prison, so, so is your whole family. And the servant begged him for mercy and for grace. And the king felt bad, and so the king forgave the servant of the debt and said, I forgive you. Everything is wiped clean. Now go. The servant left the king's palace and went literally no more, maybe let's say a half mile down the street where he came across another servant who owed him $10. This guy had borrowed $10 from him at one point and he'd never paid it back. And now all of a sudden he goes and he says, hey man, I want my $10 back and I want you to pay it now. He had just been forgiven his debt of maybe 100000 and now he's wanting this guy to pay his $10 back. When he can't do it, he simply says, fine, I'm going to get the authorities. He got the authorities and had that man put in jail. Now the other servants of the kingdom saw what was happening, went and told the king. The king calls this servant back in and says, what in the world are you thinking, man? What are you doing? Here I forgave a debt of $100,000 for you, and yet you couldn't forgive a debt of $10 to this one servant. And because you couldn't forgive, you're going to be thrown in prison, and you're going to be punished. And then verse 35 says this. This king did what my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother or sister. Get this, from your heart. When I read this, I thought, wow, that's it, man. That's the key. True forgiveness begins in the heart. It begins right here. We can't forgive unless there's a change of heart. In fact, look what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 18.31. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why do we need a new heart? Because it's in the heart that grudges are stored. Because it's in the heart that bitterness and resentment are allowed to take up residence. It's right here in the heart. Maybe that's why Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Here's the thing. If we continue to allow those things such as grudges and bitterness and resentment to take up residence in our hearts, get this, real, real forgiveness cannot be given or accepted when those things are allowed to take up space in our hearts. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is this. It's remembering that our ability to forgive is based not on who we are, but it's based on God's forgiveness of us. That's why we can forgive. 
So what does godly forgiveness look like? If we were to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us, what does godly forgiveness look like? Well, first of all, it's completely selfless. It's completely selfless. In the most unselfish act in history, Jesus died so that we could know the incredible joy of being forgiven. So let me ask you, have you taken self out of the equation? Have you taken self out of the equation when it comes to forgiving your spouse and others? But the second thing is this, it's not exclusive Godly forgiveness is not exclusive. In other words, there's no sin that we've committed that is so horrendous that he won't forgive us completely if we will just go to him and ask him to forgive. So the question becomes this. Are you demonstrating this principle in your life? Or are there some people and some things that you're just not willing to forgive? Have you developed that ability of unlimited grace? Are other things that you write down, I'll forgive this, 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 and this, but this, nah, I'm not going to forgive. Or I'll forgive this person and this person and this person, but Andy, man, no way, man. He's on his own. You see, it's not, it's not exclusive. But also, it's not a one-time offer. It's not a one-time offer. I am so thankful that God doesn't say to me, Jerry, that is the fifth Sunday in a row that during communion, you ask forgiveness for the same sin. You're toast. I'm glad that's not what God does. I'm glad that when I go to him to ask for forgiveness, he forgives. And guess what? He's called us and commanded us to do the same. It's not a one-time offer. And lastly, and maybe sometimes the most difficult, at times it seems unfair. At times, forgiveness seems unfair. I mean, I can think back, especially in ministry. Not as much, I don't think there's really been that with Lucy and I in our marriage, but especially in ministry. There have been times when I've had to go to people that I didn't do one thing against, but I had to go and ask for forgiveness because it saved the relationship. Now, was that fair? Not necessarily, but it's what was needed for the relationship to be healed. So let me ask you, was it fair that Jesus was sent to the cross? I mean, the cross was not fair. I mean, the innocent person was put to death and the guilty went free. That's not fair. That's not even justice. But that is grace and that is love. And that's the wonder of forgiveness. And now he says to us, you forgive each other even in those times when it seems unfair. And there will be those times. Again, forgiveness is one of the hardest things we're commanded to do. And left to ourselves... We will always struggle with forgiveness, especially in those times when it seems unfair. Dr. Les Perot wrote, he's a clinical psychologist, uh, has, him and his wife have written numerous books on marriage, and 
and he's, they've held seminars all over the, the world, literally. This is what he wrote, and I really like this. He says, this unnatural act of forgiveness takes a supernatural source to empower it, and that source is God. This is what we have to understand. You cannot do it on your own. You want to know why forgiveness is so hard sometimes? It's because you are trying to forgive on your own, with your power, with your strength, and you can't do it. Forgiveness can only happen by relying on the power of God and the power of God's Spirit to give us the strength and the encouragement that we need in order to go and forgive. It only happens through Him. That's why we are to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. Now, as we close this series, let me give you just a few action steps because I know we're running a little late. But as I thought about this series, these are some things I just want to leave you with. And the first one is, is so important. It's really probably the bottom baseline on all this, and it's this. If you want your relationship and your marriage to be what it needs to be, it begins by getting your relationship with God in order. I mean, that's it. You've got to get your relationship with God in order. Second of all, you've got to work on developing a face-to-face posture in your marriage to begin to develop that intimacy that you know you need and, and you want in your relationship. Not shoulder-to-shoulder, but a real intimacy in your marriage and in your relationships. Thirdly, you need to change your focus. Get the focus off self and get your focus on God and others. Change your focus. And then lastly, before you talk to anyone else, understand this. Learn to talk to God. Before you talk to anybody else, don't go to your neighbor, don't go to your co-workers, don't go to your family, your friends, don't go to anybody else. You learn to talk to God first and foremost. Here's the principle. We all need to learn how to vent vertically before we learn how to vent horizontally. Learn how to vent vertically. Because when you do, it'll change a lot of the problems in in your relationship. Sometimes that'll solve it right there. Just by going to God. Now here's what I want us to do as we close today. I've asked Adam to come. And uh, Kara's coming. And they're going to do a song. It's a great song. And as Kara sings this song... Here's what I want you to do. If you just want to pray today, I'm just going to invite you as couples or if you're not here with your spouse, but you just want to pray, the, the front's going to be open. And as she sings, she just wants you to, to invite you to come and just pray. It's a great song by a guy by the name of Andrew Peterson. And the song is called Dancing in the Minefields. As she sings this. And if you need prayer, you just come. Just kneel and pray. And just open your heart to whatever God has for you today.